You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I'm Dr. Nathan Gilmore, and I'm joined by Dr. Michael Farmer uh, here in Georgia. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm good, Nathan. How are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. I've got a, a house with only one child this morning, so it's a quiet house. Uh, and I'm also joined by uh, Dr. David Grubbs. David, how are things? Pretty decent. Very good. Well, listeners, if you've been listening to Core Curriculum, and uh, you probably should be, it'd be somewhat strange to jump in on uh, episode number, what'll this be, Michael, seven or eight? Before Something you like listen that. to the others. Uh, but this is a podcast dedicated to slow reading. We are working our way a couple books at a time through Homer's Iliad right now. Uh, we'll do that for a few months here, and then we will come back after we have uh, had a chance to talk about Plato's Republic. I believe is what Michael said at some point. And, uh, you know, over the next few years, we'll uh, read through some good books at a slow pace and invite you to come along with us. Well, we are uh, well into uh, the closing days of the city of Troy. And I think it's interesting, guys, that uh, this book uh, begins, I mean, by announcing to us, in case we had forgotten, that this is an old story. This this poem doesn't present itself as, as as giving us new events, but rather reminding us of old events. I mean, it basically says, as we all know, Achilles and Hector are going to die, and Troy is going to burn. Uh, but before that, uh, you know, this Achaean wall is going to stay standing for this chapter. So don't look for it to fall down. So, you know, as you all are reading this, I mean, you know. I guess because, you know, for me, sort of the default narrative text is still the novel, even though I spend most of my time teaching books before the novel was invented. Uh, It still catches me off guard when these stories announce that, yeah, you already know how this goes. I mean, how about you guys? I think it's one of the most interesting aspects of this literature, and it's something that uh, I always end up talking about in my classes about the Odyssey and also about Sophocles. Um, uh, My students are so... Uh, attuned to uh, to read or to watch, um, with a the the main pleasure being that of surprise. Uh, they're waiting for the twist. They're waiting for uh, what they didn't anticipate, and the idea that folks would uh, settle down for incredibly long form narratives, retelling in a more stylized, heightened, detailed manner stories to which they already knew the outcome. Um, is is uh, I hope interesting for them. It's certainly interesting for me, and it and it invites you to read the books in 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 a different kind of way than you would otherwise. And yeah, they're they're to some extent willing to do that, right, David? I, I mean, maybe I just have this in my mind because I'm recording before they were live tomorrow morning. But what are these live action remakes of classic Disney cartoons, if not? long-form retellings of stories that everyone in the audience already knows the endings of. Now, I haven't seen any of them. 
<laughs> I haven't seen any of them, so maybe maybe they changed the endings drastically, and I'm just not aware of it. But my my impression is it's it's largely the same movie. Did you just compare the live action Aladdin to Homer? Uh, unfavorably, but I, I do think it's a way in to, <laughs> to speaking to speaking to students about what the appeal of something like the Iliad is. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the Iliad is obviously better. I I shouldn't say it because I haven't seen Aladdin. Maybe maybe the live action Aladdin is so good that it displaces the Iliad in terms of uh, in terms of cultural impact. But I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, I have it. seen it. Not so much. Not so much. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of fresh princes in this particular. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's too bad that in 1991 Will Smith couldn't play Paris. Oh, nice, nice. That that would have made the movie. Well, at any rate, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Michael, because I mean, even if you go back, uh, and this isn't that long ago, but I mean, you know, to the 19th century, I mean, you know, if you read a Dickens novel what's going to happen at the end is is people are going to end up related that, you know, unless you've read a lot of Dickens novel, it comes as a surprise, right? Or at the end, ah, his first wife is in the attic, or, you know, something like that, right? Right, right, uh, there's, a, there's here, plot twists. Right, right, uh, and here there's not. But what we do have, uh, and this is something that I, I found fascinating because I think of the genre of lament uh, as something that that's very prophetic and very psalmic and very biblical more generally uh but i mean in book 12 uh and i'm looking for line numbers here because i jotted page numbers in my uh in my reading notes uh long about let's see here line 470 that neighborhood uh you get a character named uh Ozius, uh and he issues forth with a lament that you know uh as far as I could tell, you know, accuses Zeus of injustice in a way that is very biblical. And I'm looking for the uh, particular lines here, like I said. Uh, did, have you guys found it yet? Um, uh, mine is a, a rather a rather fun and a little bit dated prose translation by Rouse. Um, he says, so you don't I have do, any line numbers. I, yeah, no line numbers. I do declare, Father Zeus, you're only another lover of lies. I didn't think the Achaeans were brave enough to check our fury and stop our invincible hands, and here they are like a swarm of wasps. They've come out of their holes. Yes, that's the one. So it's interesting. I mean, David, yeah. when I read that, I mean, you know, it fell on my ear like, why do the wicked prosper and why do the unrighteous, you know, uh, trample on the good? Uh, I mean, do you hear something similar going on there, or is something else going on in that little speech? I mean, he certainly seems to regard Zeus's uh, Zeus's word or the word through um, received uh, from Zeus through through omens. Um, it's it's a little bit later that it's it's right after this that they see the omen of the eagle carrying the snake. Um, and there, and the the Trojans take that as as a bad omen. At which he point Hector decides that birds don't mean anything. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, Asios considers uh, considers Zeus's word to be one that can be trusted, and and yet he so readily um, uh, re readily uh, accuses accuses him of lies. Um, Though what 
in the whole rest of the trajectory of the Iliad up to this point would lead us to think that Zeus is keeping his word to anyone. Right. Right, or, or even that Zeus keeping his word necessarily means anything when the other gods can kind of go behind his back as they do at the beginning of Book 13, right? Right. Uh, also, the... Uh, all the all the times it's mentioned uh, of uh, intricate prayers, complex sacrificial rituals, and then a sentence that says, "But Zeus didn't hear them. Zeus didn't answer their prayer. Zeus decided not to pay attention," which is what he says right here. You can really feel in all of this ancient literature a yearning for monotheism that I think comes to a head in Plato. This this idea that, well, there are all these gods, but because there are so many of them and because they're fickle and not particularly good, what we do may or may not make a difference. And I, I think I think as ancient Greece progresses, you get this in, increasing move toward monotheism. Mm-hmm. And I'm not enough of a, a scholar of ancient religion to... Uh, you know, confirm this or deny this, but I know that uh, David Bentley Hart makes the claim in several places that Indian religion follows a similar trajectory, that by the time you get to the Bhagavad Gita, the sort of inherent contradictions in polytheism are coming to a head uh, to where you get something of a, a, a I, can't, I can't think of the, the proper term for it, but for lack of a better term, uh, a henotheism where there is a sort of uh, supreme divine principle of which the other gods are merely manifestations is is Hart arguing that this is all like preparation for christianity or is he just noting it uh honestly usually he deploys this as a sort of polemic against uh you know the atheist argument that you know well everyone is an atheist for most of the gods it's just that the atheists are more honest about all of the gods uh his argument is that you know if you look at the trajectory of Mediterranean religion and Indian religion and Buddhism, they are all approaching something that resembles monotheism. Yeah, well, I and I don't know, I don't know anything about uh, Indian religion, but I, I do think, in my experience with ancient Greek literature and philosophy, I, I definitely, I definitely see that trajectory, and I, I think you, you feel it in the Iliad. I, I don't know that it would have occurred to Homer, whoever he was or they were. Uh, to to posit that we need a single god, but I think the emphasis on Zeus here, and then the kind of failures and wickedness of Zeus, certainly points in that direction in retrospect. And what I find interesting, Michael, is that even though we do have a plurality of gods, and the gods are in this very uh, unsettled uh, relationship to each other, to where Zeus may or not be of help, uh, you know, any of the gods might take a side, switch a side, uh, you know, based on very human events, uh, even still, you know, Ozius here uh, appeals to truth, and the assumption seems to be that truth itself is unitary, even if the gods are not themselves the source of that truth. Right, yeah, that the gods, to, to even say that the gods are behaving unjustly suggests that there is some sort of universal justice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, another thread, I mean, we can come back to this one if we want to, that I wanted to, to kind of tug on this morning uh, is, especially again in book 12, uh, we get 
uh, a couple mentions of, of a phrase that you know becomes a stock phrase in the poem, which is "weak as men are now." Uh, whenever we are talking about the the deeds of Aias or Ajax, depending on your translation, and of Hector and so on and so forth, I mean we get them. Uh, for instance, at the end of Book Twelve, uh, Hector picks up a boulder the size of a millstone and smashes through the Achaean gate, uh, and the narrator. Uh, often pauses to note that, you know, these are not men as we know men, but these are, uh, well, first of all, I mean, genealogically, they are semi-divine beings, uh, but even the ones that don't have a specific divine pedigree uh, are going to be of a higher order than the people who are hearing the poem. Um, And again, you know, I'm I'm reminded of uh, narratives, you know, we're the Christian Humanist Radio network so we're going to go back to the bible narratives like that of samson like that of david so on and so forth where you do get these uh really superhuman feats uh, again i mean what kind of common ground do you guys see there what kind of distinctions do you see there between ancient hero stories in that respect i think it's a fairly consistent thread um the one difference though is that uh in the ancient hebrew narrative um the the presumption of the author is fundamentally monotheist and Samson is the champion of the true god against false gods um which is why he's able to dominate um the enemies of Israel even in the temple of those gods themselves um in this battle though the god there's many gods and they all have their own champions and and beloveds whom they assist in heroism and who they rescue if they're pushed to it um so it's it's it ends up becoming um i don't know more 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 like a a horse race we've got a people bunch of people trying to throw the race on behalf of their own or um a a bunch of kids playing a fighting game (laughs) With their on with their 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 on screen um, sort of representatives, and they don't want them to lose. Um, but uh, I think I think also of um, I mean we were talking about uh, literature in India in uh, the Ramayana, uh, the uh, the Indian hero ancient hero Rama is very clearly meant to be a representative of the gods in his acts of heroism um the his 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 courage and his strength derive from his uh alliance with uh with dharma uh he lives in the right way he represents and embodies the order of the universe um in harmony with the gods and their will and so his heroism is uh is a reflection of that um, you know, Gilgamesh is part divine. Um, yeah, one third, which is always a genealogy that confused me. Yeah. <laughs> what what part Native American is Michael Scott supposed to be? It's like three seventy seconds or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not a very big fraction. I, the the other the other thing I think it points to is the the kind of general sadness of the Iliad and, and other ancient texts, that this notion that in addition to all of this being largely meaningless, uh, 
it's not even available to us anymore. So if life is all about accruing glory for oneself through heroic deeds, and nobody alive today could lift this boulder the way Big Ajax, as Stanley Lombardo translates it, Telemonium Ajax, Big Ajax and Little Ajax. If nobody alive today could do that, then we don't even have that kind of comfort. What what do we got? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and it also tips the modern reader off that this is not a novel. Um, if if novels are about us seeing ourselves in characters, there's really no way to see yourself in Big Ajax. And if you were tempted to do so, Homer kind of cuts you off at the pass. Now, I, I do think that that is tempered somewhat. I think especially when you read something like Gilgamesh, I, I obviously you see in Gilgamesh uh, your own fear of death and your own own desire to avoid death. But also, I, I think we're reminded over and over again in all of these epics, not just not just Homer, um, that these people are not us. They're better than us. And if we see ourselves in it, we see only a, a, a shadow of of the greatness of these men. I, I think I'd want to be a little bit more optimistic, Michael, and say that we see analogies for ourselves. Uh, I think that, you know, if we make it strictly a matter of... of discontinuity between the self and big ajax which i'm going to call him from now on because that's just too awesome uh, then i think we miss out on something because i think there are scenes where the call goes out for big ajax to come and stand in the line to come and help in the fight against hector where there is a real chance that big ajax is going to see his last moment there uh and he steps up anyway so i mean i think that the the moral force relies on a tension between that discontinuity and the analogy does that make some sense it it does but the 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 truth is that none of us could even stand up against hector hector would probably not even bother to kill us we'd be something more like the women of troy who are just hiding behind the ramparts and and if we're that way i'm um I mean, I'm sorry, if, if the if the people listening to Homer tell this, it's it's still a warrior culture, right? They're not mythological. None of them think of themselves probably as descendants of the gods. And yet um, even even they, I think, are supposed to see themselves as vastly inferior to Ajax. How much more so you and I? I've never picked up an axe, let alone uh, gutted somebody wearing bronze armor with one. What do you think, David? I mean... Yeah, I mean, the, the, there is the the that repeated uh, frame, you know, which you know I remember it from uh, a few books ago when uh, Diomedes throws a giant rock at Aeneas and his mom rescues him. Um, the yeah, he picks up a rock that no two people today could pick up, right? And then you know Hector's got his millstone. Um, so yeah, the the the, the clear they were much bigger and stronger back then but at the at the beginning of the book you've got that interminable inventory of armies uh which is very very boring unless you imagine the iliad being read at something like uh the panathenaic games or something like that which is one of the earliest historic accounts of the iliad being performed and as it goes through that that catalog of cities you can imagine that set of folks in the stands going woo 
I mean, the, the, you know, e even though the history might be attenuated and they are not the men that their great-great-great-grandfathers were, sons of gods and whatnot, um, there is still some kind of tenuous connection between these heroes and their later descendants in those communities that they could see them at least as mascots or something. Um, maybe in the relationship that within the Marvel comic universe, um, uh, an American soldier in World War II would have to Captain America. I'm not Captain America, but he's on our side and he represents us. And in some way, um, we find our strength reflected in his. But we're we're even further removed from that too, right? Because we're not we're not warriors. We're not World War II soldiers. When we see Captain America, we see him from the comfort of our living room or a movie theater or what have you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely one of the guys who immediately dies in the Iliad. <laughs> I mean, I I wouldn't have made it here. I would have died in the sack of Thebes. <laughs> I probably would have fallen off the ship yeah. before we even got to Thebes. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm definitely not making any of those epic catalogs. So, 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 Michael, you're saying that I'm more Porkins from the first Star Wars? Sure. I don't know what that means, but sure. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. Well, let, listeners, those of you who are old enough to remember Star Wars: A New Hope, hopefully you enjoyed that little reference. Um, one other bit from from Book Twelve that I want to uh, hit on before I I let you guys point up some things, and and that is. Uh, Sarpedon's appeal, uh, kind of in the middle of book 12, I'm, I'm going to guess it's a, it's long about line 377 or so, and I'm reading from uh, Robert Fagel's translation, um, and also, I'm going to try to find the beginning of a sentence. Ah, oh, my friend, if you and I could escape this fray and live forever, never a trace of age, immortal, I would never fight on the front lines again or command you to the, command you to the field where men win fame. But now as it is, the fates of death await us, thousands poised to strike, and not a man alive can flee them or escape. So in we go for attack, give our enemy glory, or win it for ourselves. And, and this is, Michael, that, that I, I'm going to call it a proto-tragic sense uh, that our existence is going to end, it's probably not going to end peacefully, uh, and so it makes a great deal of sense. It is perfectly intelligible to take up a shield and a spear and to charge in because then even if your body perishes, your story persists. Uh, and it's curious to me because, I mean, this is also the ethos of martyrdom except that, you know, in that case to bear witness even in the face of danger to the body, uh, you know, obviously has a, a, a life in the age to come in addition to this, but there's also a sense in which, you know, the, the act of bearing witness uh, is itself a, a story-embedded ethos. So, I mean, well, once again, I mean, I, I don't know why I keep finding points of continuity here because I, I, my tendency is usually to find historical distance. Uh, but, you know, Sarpedon's appeal here to mortality really kind of struck me. I mean, it, it, am, am I over-reading the connection there? I mean, it hadn't occurred to me, but I... I like it, and I, I especially like it because of that line at the end. And again, I'm going to read from a different translation. This is Stanley Lombardo. It's going Let's to be go more fun. <laughs> I, I love Lombardo, as I think I've talked about on every episode I've been on. 
um, let's go forward either to give glory to another man or get glory from him. And I mean, that's interesting that, that somehow it's not just their own glory they're fighting for. It's their enemy's glory. Like they don't mind being, they don't mind being a secondary character in somebody else's story in some ways, which is what martyrdom is right in, in martyrdom. The, the hero, the primary hero is not the martyr, but God himself. And the martyr ends up being a kind of secondary protagonist in his own story. Um, so I, I did think that was interesting. To me, though, it, it points up the artificiality of this whole conflict. Um, if it's all about glory, the the idea that you're fighting for your enemy's glory in some way is interesting, given that they're supposed to be your enemy. Well, and it's interesting, I, and I, I just recently taught uh, Nietzsche's book, The Genealogy of Morals, probably the sixth or seventh time this summer, uh, and he... He doesn't cite this passage, but I am, I'm almost certain he has it in mind, uh, because one of the things he points to is a distinction between heroic mor- morality and slave morality, as he calls it, is that for the noble morality, the aristocratic, the warrior morality, uh, the enemy is one to be honored, that uh, you actually gain greatness by having great enemies. You don't have to treat your enemy as a monster. Your enemy... Uh, yeah. is a better enemy if your enemy is honorable. Yeah, I mean, and that makes sense. I, and and maybe, maybe again, my my sense of the artificiality of this conflict comes from my coming from a non-warrior culture. One in one in which you're supposed to hate your enemy, which you don't see a lot of in the Iliad. No, there's a lot of kind of game recognized game going on in this book. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Yeah, David, go ahead. I th- I, th- I was thinking of uh, giving fame to another, he to us, is the way uh, it's rendered in mine, um, is how many folks in this book are, I don't know, the equivalent of third spear carrier from the left, but they end up getting mentioned in the sentence because Diomedes kills them graphically. Right? Like, at least, they're like <laughs> as they go out, they're like, at least I made the story. <laughs> But it, 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 well, at least made, I'm on not camera. Just, not just made the story; they they typically get some sort of flashback to their childhood, or yeah, he was the bastard son of so and so, but the, that man's wife raised him like a real son, and then he died, or whatever. So, it so is. you get not not just the warriors get a place in this story, but the people they left back home get a place in the story through the warriors who were mentioned only because they're killed by somebody famous. So that's yeah. interesting. In, in a society yeah. built on glory, um, sure, the glory all comes through military combat, but one need not actually be a warrior in order to get mentioned through that. Yeah. I had highlighted Sarpedon's uh, comments to Glaucos to Nathan, um, but I hadn't started uh, at that point. Um, you, know, you, you looked at it and saw... You know, death comes at the end, so we might as well go in battle. Uh, I saw the, why have you and I the seat of honor at home, Glaucos? Why have we the best portions, cups always full, and all treat us like something greater than men in that fine estate? Orchards and wheatlands are the best. For that, we are bound to stand now before our people in the scorching fires of battle. And then the brave men in the ranks can say, sure enough, there's nothing mean in our kings and governors. They eat the best and drink the best, but there's strength in them too. And they always fight in front. Um, Fat like West, the, gold kinning. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so I, yeah, exactly. I, I read it, and I was like, that sounds, um, to me, uh, like Wheeloff's appeal to uh, the rest of Beowulf's guard as they, you know, wet their pants in the tree line as the dragon is making hash of Beowulf. The, come on, guys, we had a good life in the hall, you know, we drank, we took oaths, we received treasures, and now's the time for us, for this, for us, the aristocratic warrior class, who lives like the aristocratic warrior class, to actually demonstrate that we're, we're worth the space we take up in the economy. <laughs> right, right. The more privilege you have during peacetime, the more responsibility you have during wartime. Which is why for all his blowhardiness, you got to kind of give it to Agamemnon for leading the charge into, into Troy. Oh, absolutely, Agamemnon, yeah. Agamemnon I mean, gets called a coward by many characters throughout this poem. But to me, I mean, Agamemnon is the one going in first. He's also the one who goes out first because he gets injured, but... Yeah, but once he picks yeah. up a spear, dude can fight. Right, right. And in, and in fact, he tells Menelaus, you have no business challenging, I think it's Hector, um, because you're not powerful enough to beat him. You've got no chance. Let me do it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. He, I mean, he's a boss. He's a terrible person, but he's a boss. Well, they're all terrible people, right? I mean, none of them, <laughs> none of them except maybe Hector, would you ever want to invite over for dinner? Well, it's also interesting. I mean, this is, it, it's not the sort of Wild West, you know, I'll shoot you while you're looking at me ethos that makes the bow and arrow so, uh, I guess, such a... a stigma in this poem uh but it's precisely that when you are sniping someone with your bow there's no chance that you're going to get written into the story as the next one who takes a spear mm. yeah yeah I mean, which i don't know i i and you know I, I am not of a warrior culture you know i mean the the most fighting i ever did was at you know parties in high school when people had drunk too much that's not the same as fighting the trojan war i'll go ahead and grant it <laughs> but there is something just viscerally appealing to this ethos, even though once I step back from it, I know that it's not mine. Yeah. I like Nestor. He tells good stories. We'll say some more about Nestor in this, this segment of the poem, David. Uh, he's not really in it, is he? No, no, no. He's, he's, in, he's in the section before then when they're drinking the wine with onions in it, which is weird. Um, but which, which, if listeners want to hear about, they should uh, go back to the previous episode of this program. Yeah. Right, which yeah. <laughs> you you all will have already heard at this point, but I've not yet recorded it, which means we're <laughs> still in Avengers Endgame. <laughs> this is a weird timeline, guys. My head hurts. <laughs> uh, well, I, I would just bring it up because, you know, you, you said, Michael, that all of these are evil people and you don't want to hang out with any of them. Um, I mean... You know, I'm, I might hang out with Nestor, and and uh, j you know, just just for old man story time. Fair enough, but I wonder what he was like when he was younger. Cattle I mean, raids. He, he man. tells that story again. He killed not to, centaurs. Yeah, not not to <laughs> scoop the previous episode, which hasn't been recorded yet. But he tells that story about him yeah. fighting for the glory of his country. But you know, mm -hmm. how much do you believe it? Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, at any rate, guys, anything else you want to touch on in Book 12 before we move on to 13? Um, the, uh, 
I mentioned earlier uh, the the eagle and serpent omen. Um, they're always watching the birds for omens, uh, but it's it's always interesting to me that you can you can kind of spot who's doomed in a Homeric epic or you know a Greek tragedy based on their immediate dismissal of omens. Uh, not, not just not just not just that uh, you get it in uh, uh, Oedipus the King too, where Yocasta yeah, yeah. Yocasta dismisses sight. Uh, what do you call it? I was going to say sightseeing, but that's not it, is it? Whatever. <laughs> or, or in slasher films, you know, the person that says, "I'll go check it out." Yes, yeah, Sears. Um, yeah, she dismisses the Oracle. Soothsayers um, is the word I was looking for, not sightseers. <laughs> yeah, sightseers are at are at the Statue of Liberty. Soothsayers are I don't know they're in a different place. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 a lot like that, but uh, everyone's seeing you know eagle with snake and and making these inferences about it, and and then Hector, your advice is. To obey a flying bird. What's a bird to me? I don't care about birds. <laughs> the only bird that's always right is fight for home and country. Fight! Why are you afraid of a fight? If all the rest of us are killed in this battle, there's no fear that you will be killed. You wouldn't have pluck to stand and fight, right? So he, he doesn't, you know, he, he's not going to listen to them now. But he doesn't listen. He does listen to them in other times. You know, there's this this inconsistency in their attitude towards um, indications of fate or portents or even invocations of the divine. Basically, they are as pious as they need to be to get the gods to do what they want. Um, and when they see a portent that tells them that that. In, in, indicates the path of action they were already inclined to. They embrace it, but as soon as the gods seem to be doing something different, there's accusations. As soon as the portents seem to be going the other way, well, portents are meaningless. It, remi um, it reminds me of that great adaptation of the Odyssey, uh, "O Brother, Where Art Thou," where where U Ulysses McGill wants to uh, wants to consult the blind man. And he gives this kind of pompous speech about how the blind have powers that are not given to regular people and then the blind man tells him not to seek the treasure and he says what the hell does he know he's an ignorant old blind man <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> right the other thing i wanted to point to is a speech by the ajc's both of them working together they're standing on top of the wall uh trying to get the greeks to go back into the fight and they say, friends, this is uh, about line 278 in Lombardo, friends, and I mean everyone from heroes to camp followers, no one ever said men are equal in war. There's work for us all. I'm very interested in that because it maintains the military hierarchy, which is a, a major uh, player in the Iliad, but also it makes the war universal. So everyone has a place in the war, but not everyone is equal in the war. And I just find that interesting. It's somehow democratic yeah. and uh, aristocratic at the same time. Right. Yeah, that makes good sense. Plus, yeah. I just wanted to say HSCs. <laughs> <laughs> Although, it must be said, uh, Lombardo just says Ajaxes, which I, I really think he missed an, an opportunity, a rare misstep by Stanley Lombardo. Oh, there you go. There you go. 
<laughs> well, I want to I want to turn the corner into book thirteen, where it begins with Zeus getting bored and deciding to go visit horse country up in Thrace, uh, and and I I have to think, and you guys, I mean, you've been correcting me for ten years, so correct me here if I'm going astray. I have to think that the poem is inherently allegorical here, uh, that when Zeus departs and all of a sudden Poseidon and the other deities uh, start spurring on different parts of the battle, uh, I have to think that, you know, the, the personified anthropomorphic gods are allegorical for the chaotic, unpredictable, unsystematic, unpre- you know, I already said unpredictable, forces uh, that, you know, make a battle turn. I mean, I... Do you guys read this literally first and foremost, or, I mean, does it immediately suggest allegory to you? I mean, I've read enough of what the later Greek and Roman and then Christian tradition does with this material for the allegorical reading to not feel weird. And there's usually some aspect of that kind of lurking lurking at the back of my mind. Like, whenever... um, whenever Athena pops up behind someone and restrains them or or gives them advice on what to say next, um, she's she's just this far away from being just straight-up wisdom and prudence. Well, yeah, she is super-ego. Right. Um, but, you know, the, it, this, is a, this is a pretty messy allegory that hasn't quite identified all of its, um, you know, it's not Bunyan, right? Well, no, like, I mean, I, you know, that's what makes it readable. Yeah, the best allegories are messy, I think. <laughs> well, though, the, I mean, it's hard to do an allegory when you're like, okay, well, what does Poseidon represent? The um, ocean. Uh huh. Well, no, no, no. In this scene, in this scene, I mean, let's let's. I, I, I'm going <laughs> to stipulate here that an allegorical element doesn't always have to represent the same thing. I think that right. the presence of Zeus yep. represents here the intangible whatever it is that's making the Trojans win this part of the battle. When Zeus departs, whatever that intangible thing is goes away, and Poseidon steps into the vacuum, and all of a sudden the Achaeans start winning again. I mean, yeah. that makes sense to me as, you know, whether whether you're talking about a baseball game allegory or a Trojan War allegory, I mean, that is the, the randomness and the unpredictability of any kind of struggle. Yeah, well, and, and yeah. it's it's like the the Greeks get a second wind because Homer has Poseidon go and uh, and uh, pump up the agencies. Yeah, yeah, and they, they're even aware of it, right? They say, "Okay, I was flagging just a moment ago, but all of a sudden I'm feeling good. Let's go kill some Trojans." I think it, yeah. the, when the word Lombardo uses is joy. So it's like the joy of the battle comes back. The the despair that has been engulfing the Greeks to this point disappears, and all of a sudden they're ready to kill again. Woo! Woohoo! Um, I, I love the fact that this is one of the times where the gods um, display their presence. They don't always. Sometimes they'll intervene in the form of someone um, and then just you know, sort of fold back into the background. Um, they've been manipulating things on the down low, or they'll send a dream, or they'll give someone an impulse, or they'll, you know, invisibly guard someone, you know. So, but in this particular instance, Poseidon, he takes 
the form of someone they recognize to give them a rah-rah speech, but then as soon as he's done so, he flies away, and uh, you know the Ajax. One of the Ajaxes says to the other Ajax, "That was a god of Olympus in the shape of our diviner, telling us to fight. That wasn't Calchas, our interpreter of birds. <laughs> um, we knew him at once by the way his feet and legs moved from behind. W- wait, what?" I don't know that line. What, what does that make sense? How does y'all's read? I could tell from the tracks he made when he left. Ah, okay. All right. That's that's much clearer. What are you doing, yeah. Rouse? That's yeah, so the, the tracks in his wake, his stride as he sped away. I knew him at once with ease, no mistaking the gods. Okay, okay. Cool, cool. That makes way more sense than, than what I'm reading here. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Calchas, who told us that Apollo was plaguing the camp back in book one, don't run like that. Yes. <laughs> he he flew off. I don't recall Calchas doing that. That must be a god. Um, which, you know, reminds me of, you know, a text that I teach really, uh, really regularly, the Odyssey, um, which is the couple of times that Athena takes takes forms of older men that uh, first that Telemachus doesn't know, and then later that he does know. As soon as she's given her advice um, to him or finished her, her agenda with interacting with him, she flies off, and he immediately realizes he was in the company of a deity. And that and that recognition of divine patronage um, gives energy, gives inspiration, gives uh, morale for the next move. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, I could see why that would work. <laughs> it's like Aslan breathing on people in Narnia. Right, right. That makes good sense. And again, uh, maybe, David, it is because, you know, I've, I've, I've spent so much time with platonic and medieval readings of these narratives, but I mean, it, it, it reads to me as if there are a plurality of, of readings inherent in the text. Uh, it doesn't seem like you have to impose the allegory for it to make sense here. No, no. The the allegory isn't necessary for the story to make sense on its own right. Um, but as meditations on how battles work and how those who had no hope suddenly seem to gain it and things like that, um, you know, you, you could also read it, read it in that way. Um, you can imagine, like, what would the experience of someone, uh, uh, of someone whose whose imagination is shaped by the Iliads? Imagine you're an ancient Greek in the Persian Wars. Um, you know, were there moments in battle where someone spoke to you uh, and then seemed to disappear in the fray, and you know, it gave you heart, and you wonder. Was that my buddy, or was that Athena? Yeah, makes good sense to me. Or, or, you know, if you've ever talked to anybody who believes they've met an angel, I mean, it's something very similar, right? At least the, yeah, the, yeah. the stories yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, that, that, that makes sense as a parallel to me. Um, one thing that strikes me, you know, uh, again, as, as the mastery of this poem is as we've kind of talked about, is that everyone 
even if they've read the Iliad, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago, uh, they'll remember Agamemnon and Achilles and Odysseus and Ajax, probably, or the Ajaxes, and Hector and Priam. Uh, but there are these, these little episodes, like there is in Book 13, with this character, and I've even got to look at the, the name here so I pronounce it properly, uh, Orthrioneus. Uh, and I think it's fascinating because, you know, whereas the book begins with this divine, I would read it as an allegory of, of God's coming and going, then when we get to kind of the middle of this book, along about line 420 or so, we get this very particular story of this one soldier uh, who first, you know, Priam sends messengers saying, you know, uh, come to our side, we'll give you these things if you'll fight on our side instead of theirs, and then Idomeneus comes back to him and basically makes a counteroffer. Uh, and again, it's interesting because there doesn't seem to be any moral, um, uh, I guess, any moral opprobrium attached to this. I mean, it's just kind of part of war, you know, if uh, if someone comes to you and you have an opportunity for greater glory, uh, then it seems like, you know, if he had gone either way, there wouldn't have been any judgment for him. Or am, or am, am I missing here? Was there a proper way for uh, Orthrioneus to go here? I, I think you're missing something more fundamental, which is that Orthrioneus is dead when Idomeneus is saying that to him. I did miss that, so talk yeah, some more. It, it, um, here's Lombardo. It's about line 375. Idomeneus, hair-flecked with gray and yelling for Greeks to back him up, jumped at the Trojans and scattered them with his first kill. This was Othrioneus, who, though from Cabesus, was one of Troy's inner circle. And then it tells the story of him um, negotiating to marry Cassandra, who, um, of course, becomes so important in Agamemnon's story. And then as he dies, Idomeneus says, you'll be the happiest man on earth, Othrioneus, if you accomplish all you promised Dardanian Priam. We heard he promised you his own daughter. We could match his offer, you know, and give you Agamemnon's loveliest daughter. Ship her here from Argos for the wedding. If only you'd switch to our side and conquer Troy. Come on over to the ship so we can negotiate this marriage. You'll find we offer easy terms. And he started to drag him off by one leg through the crowd, but Ozias came to the dead man's aid. So, I mean, yeah, this is, to, to me, one of the cruelest parts of the entire book. I mean, Okay, I missed, yeah, I missed that detail, so say some more, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just Idomeneus it, it, being purposely cruel, no respect for the guy whatsoever, perhaps because his interest in the war is so mercenary. I don't know, but that's that's pretty nasty. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, you, you get used to um, uh, kill insults, in the Iliad, it's it's one of the Bond movie aspects of it, I guess, or maybe even Schwarzenegger movie aspects, because they aren't always that clever. Um, but this one's particularly cruel. Uh, the the way it describes it, um, the is that in in mine is that uh, Orthrioneus uh, had asked for Cassandra's hand in marriage, bringing no marriage gifts, but promising to drive away the Achaeans by force of arms. Um, so what he had brought to Troy uh, as his as his treasure was his 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 valor. Um, did he have nothing else that was that was worthy to bring for his suit? Did he recognize that Troy was in such a state that valor was more valuable than gold? 
Um, in any event, I mean, he's he's not here because this is his fight. He's here because he wants to marry a pretty girl. Um, and so, well, and marry into the royal family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently, well, she did warn him that this was a bad idea, but he wouldn't listen to her. That's nice. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, but I, apparently, this is so well known, and he's rec- and he's so recognized that his 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 enemy. Guy from the enemy army, uh, Idumenius, will taunt him about the details of his biography as he's wallowing in death on the ground. You know, taunting him with uh, the audacity and the height of his dreams as he's dying. Right, right. dark. It does make you wonder about the non-Trojans who are fighting on the Trojan side. Why exactly they're doing that? The Trojan position is so crystal clear that I, th- I think it's hard not to sympathize with them because they're fighting to defend their city like who could who could blame them but what are all these mercenary groups from other uh, other countries doing are they fighting because they believe the trojan side to be more just are they fighting for the money and the glory why exactly are they fighting uh, i guess and- i assume that it was just a matter of loyalty that they had kind of intermarriage you know uh alliances for you know for lack of a non-acronistic term and that you know this was their obligation, just as it is Achilles's proper obligation to fight on the side of Agamemnon, even though he doesn't. But I mean, maybe this is maybe this is the noblest way I can think of to read Edmonius here. Maybe what he's what he's saying is you don't really have a reason to be in this to be in this fight. You're doing so for the love of a woman or whatever, or because you want to join the royal family. And and look at where it's got you. I yeah, mean, that's yeah, the, that's about the that. only way I can spin it so that Idomeneus is not just a, you know, horse's ass. <laughs> yeah. I I I don't think you're supposed to spin it. I think he's I think he's just being terrible and cruel. Um but if you are uh if you're one who's who's sort of uh, automatically aligned with the Greeks, um this is a sick burn. Yeah, as, you're supposed to as, cheer it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you're like, ooh, that's going to hurt. You know, like, yeah, but he's dying. You're a terrible person. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I, the the amount of information that uh, the different characters have about each other, the ways that they recognize one another, um, in some ways that might that might, that that sometimes feels a bit strange to me when I'm reading the Iliad, but um, maybe that's exactly the way it would be if they had been fighting in front of Troy for ten years. You know that they would have this this uh, face recognition of the main players that they would they would have gotten to know of them and know about them over the, over the course of this time. Um, maybe maybe that's not as weird as it feels to me. That's fair enough. I, I do want to ask you guys, uh, you know, something that I noticed on this read-through of the Iliad that I hadn't noticed before is that uh, whereas whenever Agamemnon is on the battlefield, uh, we get persistent imagery of lions. Uh, and, of course, I, I, I realize I've, I've brought up genealogy of morals 17 times. I'm going to make it 18 now. I've, I've got to think that this is, again, one of those images that is behind the blonde beast that you know Nietzsche talks about in uh, 
genealogy of morals. But what I've noticed this time is that whenever Hector is on the battlefield, the image is fire. Uh, and I think it's hmm. interesting the the difference there between images, right? Whereas one of them is a predator that you know we can assign a certain intentionality to. Fire is more of just an ele- elemental destructive force. Uh, so that, I mean, Hector is terrifying even in a way that Agamemnon is not. It reminds uh, me of a scene we're going to get soon where... Achilles actually fights the river and reroutes it. It's mentioned at the beginning of Book 12, but we haven't actually seen it happen yet. Achilles Achilles goes in and beats the river up. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that scene. Yeah, yeah. So fun. But yeah, I'll Hector... Ahead, yeah, Hector's... Um, the, but it's the fact that Zeus has, at the back of all of this... Zeus is still at work um overall it you know charging uh charging the Trojans with domination and Hector seems to be his primary his primary instrument at play so even though Zeus is not um he doesn't seem to be immediately here, here paying uh paying attention cuz he went off to go watch you know wherever that was um, oh, the Thracians watching people drink mare's milk or whatever. Um, it's It seems as if Hector is still energized in the way that he has been um, for for the past few books. Um, I don't I don't know I, I don't know if this if if it struck you all this way. Um, I, I I was interested in you talking about the the fire imagery, Nathan. Um, but Hector has, up to this point, been very humanized. Um, I mean, he's the one that we actually get to see talking to his wife and baby. We get to see him chastising his brother for his bad bad behavior. Um, but in this particular section, he doesn't seem to be recognizably that Hector anymore. Um, it's, he's almost like berserk mode Hector. Hector. Uh, I, I find myself um, much less inclined to um, to sympathize with him in this part, but maybe that's because of the ways that he's given himself over to uh, this this god's function. Yeah, he's inhuman does. now. And I'm going to swing and miss with another Star Wars parallel here, but I mean it's the <laughs> it's the difference between Revenge of the or no. Return of the Jedi Darth Vader versus uh, Rogue One Darth Vader. Um, you know, if our listeners have seen the the standalone film Rogue One, the brief moment at the end of the film where Darth Vader appears, uh, I mean, he is a a force of nature. I mean, he is this onrushing, onstop, unstoppable force. Uh, wow, I made a pun there that I didn't intend. Uh, that, you know... Uh, <laughs> It is probably the most terrifying thing in any of the Star Wars films, even though you know full well as a viewer that this is the same very human character that you met back in 1983. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a good. I think that's a good way to to say it because there, there's a way in which Hector's humanity has been masked by this battle persona, um, in the same way that. Uh, we know that the Vader in Rogue One uh, 
is to be identified with, you know, Anakin Skywalker in the prequels and the unmasked Darth Vader of Return of the Jedi, but no one who's in that movie, <laughs> no one who's in Rogue One sees him that way. He's just the implacable black armor that just keeps coming. Right, um, right. So even though we have access to those humanizing moments for Hector, uh, to you know, to the Achaeans who are who are falling to his sword as he just burns through their ranks, um, he's Vader. He's in it. He, he's he's that Vader. He's inaccessible. Um, he's masked. I really wish there'd been literary criticism when this when this poem came out because I would love to know how the original audience received this. It's so it's oh, sure, so hard sure. to read this and not to not to dislike Achilles and Agamemnon and like Hector and I I just I can't help but think that that's not how we're supposed to read it. I mean Hector is on the other side. We're supposed to root for the Greeks and yet and yet the Trojan cause, the Trojan heroes, Hector, Priam, even Helen are so much more um, sympathetic than basically everybody on the Greek side that it's it's. When I read this, I almost think that Homer is some sort of enemy agent undermining the Greek cause by, by humanizing the Trojans so much. But if you look at all almost all the Greek myths about their their city state founders and their great heroes, um they all take tragic turns. They all um you know, Jason and the Argonauts, which, you know, I loved that the Harryhausen film when I was a kid, and then I read the rest of Jason and the Argonauts, and I'm like... Or Medea, good lord. Yeah, yeah, like, like this guy's awful. This this is a terrible person. <laughs> but you Achilles know. so clearly has nothing to recommend him other than his power. Yeah. Which, in a warrior culture, is enough. I get that. But, um, ah, man... <laughs> I, I wonder if there's another book that is as difficult to read as its original audience would have read it as the Iliad. Yeah. Even the Odyssey. I mean, yeah, Odysseus lies, and that's that's why we're supposed to admire him. But we kind of get that. Like the trickster character is universal enough. To if you if you admire yeah. Jacob from the Bible, for example, you're going to admire Odysseus at least a little bit. But I mean, Achilles as a hero is so foreign to us. Yeah, I don't know. Right, well, and, and again, I mean, it, it is that difference. I think, and again, I'm I'm willing to be corrected here, but I mean, between that heroic morality and then a more urban morality, for lack of a better term, to where in the Iliad, you know, it is a positively good thing to insist on one's standing in the world, so that you know, when when Achilles and Agamemnon in Book One. Uh, or when, you know, Hector and Paris in Book 6 uh, stand toe-to-toe and they are allies, but each insists on his own standing. Uh, it's not something that, you know, uh, they have violated a, a mandate for humility, but they are insisting on their own importance. And, you know, the I guess the mode of judgment that I see inherent in there is the extent to which they are rightly insisting on a right level of importance or whether they're missing high or low. And it's weird, I'll grant that. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to get inside of, even if I can attempt to narrate it verbally. And all of this, though, is also, 
you know, if you if you read the Iliad along with the Odyssey, and regardless of you know theories of source and authorship, um, through most of through through all of the history that we know of these two texts, they were read side by side. Um, when you meet Achilles in the underworld in the Odyssey, that Achilles would rather be a dirt farmer than have the life that he actually had. Right, right. So, you know, I I don't I don't think you can real, rule out the possibility of a reader or an, a listener more properly of the of the original Iliad hearing uh, hearing the way Achilles des- is described, um, seeing yeah the glory, but also you're you're just dead. Well, at any rate, guys, uh, we have hit most of what I've got uh, as far as, you know, what I want to dig into. Is there anything else in Book 13 or any uh, general inquiries you want to pursue here at the end? As a well-documented uh, hater of Paris, I'm interested in the scene where he kills Eucanor at the end of Book 13. It's line 692 is where it starts in uh, Lombardo. It says, uh, Paris was enraged at the killing of ooh, somebody. Harpalion, I think, whatever. Uh, among the Paphlagonians, Harpalion had been his host, and in anger for his sake, he let fly an arrow tipped with bronze, and a man named Eucanor got in its way. So even when he kills somebody, even when he's successful, it seems to be through no particular <laughs> virtue of his own. He just shoots an arrow blindly, and it happens to kill this guy. Menelaus is the one who kills Harpalion, so, I mean, presumably it's Menelaus he should be shooting at, but he misses and hits someone else. But hey, at least he killed a Greek. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found uh, interesting, my, my little nugget in Book 13, um, we've encountered, you know, sons of deities, like all of this is happening because of Achilles, son of a deity, um, Aeneas is running around getting protected by his mom and Uncle Poseidon, um, you know, and so forth. Sarpedon is a son of Zeus, if I remember rightly. Uh, but then you've got this one dude who shows up. Um, I don't have the line number, but it's it's about halfway through the book, named Ascalaphos, pierced in the shoulder, and Ascalaphos fell into dust, clutching, clutching handfuls of earth. He was the son of Ares. But Ares didn't know that his son had fallen. His uproarious voice was silent. His strong arm was still. He sat on Mount Olympus under the golden clouds, held fast by the will of Zeus, with the other immortals who were there restrained from taking part in the battle. So, some of the... In in this particular case... um, This son of a god just sort of falls unheard and unknown like that 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 i thought was incredibly uh dark and 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 poignant um the degree to which you know the gods have been paying so much attention and backing their offspring um and then and then this one guy he falls but Ares can't hear and Ares can't act because zeus prevents it and so he just he just falls Right, which also leads me to read it as a, an untidy allegory because at the beginning of the book, Zeus is off in Thrace, so he's not on Olympus keeping Ares from jumping in. 
And yet here at the end, I mean, you know, it is. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I have a point here. I have a point Did here. Did Homer nod? <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I don't think Homer's nodding. I think that, you know, again, if you read this allegorically, this is uh, the reality in any kind of struggle where it would make sense at this point for the battle to turn in a certain way, but it just doesn't. Whatever might have happened doesn't. And there are no guarantees. No position saves you. Not just human position, but even divine position. Yeah. Right. And they're all dead now. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, at any rate, listeners, thank you for uh, jumping in with us for another hour and a little bit of change uh, to talk about the Iliad. Uh, the next episode will be, what, Michael, books 14 and 15, or just book 14? Uh, no, it'll be 14 and 15, I think. Very good. So we hope to... Catch you then, listeners.